and welcome to this year's edition of the Religious Studies Project Christmas Special. Yay! Yay! The audience participates. That's always helpful. Okay, uh, this year we are coming to you from the BASR Annual Conference in Chester. Once again, I'm your host, Jonathan Tuckett, mainly because when I'm a contestant, I cause too much trouble. So I'm put in the host seat tonight so that I'm kept in control. Uh, this year, we'll be playing a game called Scrape My Barrel, which is in no way meant as a commentary on the calibre of our contestants. <laughs> Maybe. The game is simple. On the board, the very elaborate fancy board that we have expense for, will appear an obscure term. Each member of one of the teams will then read out a definition for that term. Only one of those members will be telling the truth. The other two definitions are fake. It will then be on one member from the opposite team to then decide who is telling the truth. The winner of the game will be whoever discovers the truth more often. If there is a tie break, I have a special round prepared just in case. So, to the teams. Our first team tonight are the established academics. <laughs> a trio of venerable scholars. Okay, I say venerable, but two of them are actually quite young and spry. <laughs> but... <laughs> However, as the video will probably demonstrate to you, they have already taken to strong drinks already. <laughs> Whereas their counterparts have not. First on the team is a man whose first words to me were, Have you read Foucault? <laughs> Uttered from the shadowy recesses of a rather deserted lecture hall. Uh, that was about five years ago, and the answer is still no. I give you Paul... <laughs> I give you Paul Francois Tremlett of the Open University. Next is one of our very own gracious hosts for the conference, so we'll keep to tradition and make sure this experience is as embarrassing for her as absolutely possible. I give you Dawn Lewenen of the University of Chester. Finally, the team captain representing the previous victors of our RSP specials is most certainly a venerable sage among our numbers and was himself almost... 2013 winner of the Christmas special. I give you George Crusides of the University of Birmingham. Yay. Our other team tonight is the up and coming team. So called because we're still trying to be optimistic about the current status of affairs. First on the team is a PhD student who has candidly realised that we've run out of things to say about real religions, so she started saying things about fake religions instead. I give you Vivian Asimov of the University of Durham. Yay. Next along is a fellow wanderer of the academic hinterland of post-PhD life, although I think someone gave her a better map than the one that I was given. I give you Amy Whitehead of the University of Wales. And finally, we have an RSP regular, currently finishing his PhD, showing that Tyler's concept of survivals really does work 
in the case of the indigenous people of Scotland. <laughs> it's our very own Liam Templeton Sutherland of the University of Edinburgh. Okay, so as I said at the start of the game, the term will appear up on the board. Each team will read out their three definitions, and then the member of the opposing team will get a chance to decide who is telling the truth. So, tonight's first term, it is Aswang. Okay, so, venerable academics, if you could each read out your definition of Aswang in turn, please. And we'll start with Dawn and move along. It's actually pronounced Ashwang, and it's a contemporary feminist ritual associated with the neo-pagan women's movement for enhancing and channeling female creativity specifically. In keeping with the goddess movement's tendency to draw on ancient narratives or just nick them when they feel like it unreflexively, it's inspired by the Babylonian deity of the same name, who's closely associated with craft making, but also with poetry, storytelling, song and intelligence. Ashwang's exact translation is unknown, but it's usually thought to refer to the imagination. While not widely celebrated as a goddess, her cult seems to have been centred around southern Mesopotamia, and is now, which is now in Iraq. One of the well-known myths around about her tells the story of Enki, who was the patron uh, god of the city of Eridu. Now, Enki caused an earthquake when the people forgot his particular feast day. Ashwang, on behalf of the city, intervened and soothed Enki's rage by writing and singing an ode praising his power and fertility. That usually works, doesn't it? <laughs> In contemporary feminist ritual, if you were to undertake this particular um, form or uh, a religious expression, a magic circle is created in the usual way by finding the four cardinal points and four objects to represent the elements associated with them. Stone for earth and the north, feather for air in the east, a candle for fire in the south, and a shell or a glass of water for water in the west. Following which, the, uh, the woman or the particular women involved in this ritual uh, read out a piece of poetry or prose that's particularly inspired them. And then they write down seven words on a piece of paper. Creativity, imagination, vision, innovation, genius, inspiration, and originality, the seven words are read out together in the sequence three times. After a period of silence, participants state and share what they are hoping to be inspired for and why, asking Ashram for guidance. The ritual closes with the pieces of paper being set alight by the candle, and then, of course, they're safely disposed of. Ashram. Like any good academic, I gave them a minute to give their presentation, and that was about two. <laughs> so, moving on to George. I'd like you to imagine yourself ascending a Nepalese mountain. There's an ancient temple at the top. And as you ascend, you hear the most sublime sounds. And you can't determine whether these are the sounds of the gods, the bodhisattvas, the choirs of angels, or humans that have been brought to perfection. Well, if you ever experience this, you're probably listening to an aswang. An aswang is a musical instrument employed in Nepalese pre-Buddhist temples. It's a string instrument that closely resembles the sound of the human voice. 
and its name derives from two Sanskrit words, aswa and ang, meaning summary and form. In other words, the form of the instrument sums up the experience of enlightenment. And the instrument is designed to replicate the perfected human self that consists of body, speech, and mind. And so the instrument has the number three central to its construction. It has three strings and it has three small chests, each of which replicates one aspect of the Buddhist conception of the human self. It's made out of a carved single block of tuna wood with uh, these three melodic strings. And it produces sounds such that you're unlikely to hear this side of death. <laughs> because of its associations oh, with... <laughs> Because of its associations with death, it is customary to have parts of dead animals used in the construction. And so you might find a piece of camel or buffalo bone on the instrument's bridge, or some really expensive aswangs have got strings made from goat's intestines. And a bonapo, which is the name of the priest who... Uh, is the adept invoking the gods and spirits in this temple, has expertise in these mantra and magical invocation, uh, invocations. And so he employs the use of the aswang to replicate these ethereal sounds that have the special potency to bring the listener to full enlightenment. Oh, we're done. Okay. <laughs> And, PhD, George. <laughs> <laughs> I feel much better about my definition being short. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Paul. So, I mean, obviously they're lying to you, okay? Uh, George's tale has at least the, the benefit of pronouncing the word correctly, Aswang, not Ashwang, whatever you were talking about. Um, Aswang is a vampire-like creature. Uh, it, it, it comes from the Philippines. It's um, famous because the top half of the body detaches from the bottom half of the body, and it's got a particular predilection for sucking the viscera from uh, pregnant women. Oh, no. And, <laughs> and uh, if you were to visit Manila of a you know uh, of a Saturday afternoon and, and read the local newspapers you'd very likely find stories of Aswang um, terrorizing neighborhoods, scaring children. And, and it, you know, it's, it's, it's a creature that, you know, that is constantly in feature films, in, 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 in novels and comic novels and all that kind of stuff. So Aswang, Filipino folklore, vampire, body separate, you know, separating body, not what these two said. <laughs> okay, so... Could you summarise in a brief sentence each of your definitions for the benefit of the other team? So, Dawn's was? It's a contemporary feminist ritual deriving from a Mesopotamian deity. And George was? A musical instrument. 
And Paul was a Filipino vampire. So, Amy, who is telling porcupines about an asswang? Oh. Who is telling porcupines? Who is telling the truth, I should say. Yes. Right. And so who's telling the truth? I'm going to go with George. George, were you telling the truth? Of course not. He was not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now it is the turn of the up-and-comers to read their definition. And their term will be... No, 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 no. You only know that you got it wrong. <gasps> I thought it was the vampire. There is a reason for this, which I will make clear once the show is over. So, the next term is... Heterotopology. So, beginning with Vivian, what is... Heterotopology. Uh, heterotypology is a categorization type of uh, various heteronormative ideas. Uh, while the exact number of the different categories in question that happens uh, in heterotypological uh, academics, uh, most can, uh, it's, it's in question is exactly how many there are, um, but most can agree on their generally speaking being four different heterotypological categories. There's the religious, online trolls, social um, romantic, and social political, although the last name has recently uh, been renamed the Trump category. <laughs> uh, its usefulness, uh, it's really helpful for academics because um, it helps sort various ideas or assumptions that a particular culture has into different types and specific types of heteronormative views and ideas. Liam. Well, heterotopology is just one of those, you know, one of those academic terms that you sometimes pinch yourself and think it's that you can't be serious. <laughs> but it comes from the Greek hetero, meaning different, and topology, meaning places or the uh, a landscape. Um, basically, it is a um, space that incorporates multiple multiple meanings into itself basically so that is one that is assigned quite definite uh, meanings i am probably not explaining this very well <laughs> but like uh, very much as you know this place has multiple meanings are being attached to this word most of them wrong um so basically it comes from michel foucault it's me uh, the example that i use is a uh, hospital chaplaincy that has attached to it the the discourses of uh, healing and uh, sort of a kind of all faiths and none uh, general spirituality discourse, but it's also being used as a specifically Christian space and that sort of thing. So it's a space that incorporates multiple frames of meaning into itself, I think. Okay. <laughs> Amy. Yes, so heterotopology is the study of the difference in the features um, with, in features with regard to the um, topographies of mythical or legendary kingdoms and realms, such as Shangri-La, Shambhala, Avalon, or Atlantis. It compares and contrasts the written and orally passed down differences between these sacred places and the texts that describe them. 
Agatha could also be included here and um, being located, of course, course in, the, in the center of the, of the Earth or in the Earth's core. So heterotopology. Excellent. So just for the benefit of the older academics, in case they, you know, fell asleep, yeah. could you just give a one-sentence summary of each definition? Uh, heterotopology is a categorization system used by academics for heteronormative ideas. Heterotopology is a social space that incorporates different uh, forms of social significance into itself. Heterotopology is the study of the differences in the topographical uh, features in uh, mythical or legendary realms. Okay. George, well, I which think... is telling the truth? Well, Vivian's clearly confusing typology and topology. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's not her. Okay. But, uh, so you've got a 50-50 shot? Yeah, I've got a 50-50 We're chance. not playing who uh, wants to be a millionaire, however. Yeah. <laughs> Liam's very plausible, but I do like Amy's definition better. I think sacred spaces is the thing. Okay, Amy, are you telling the truth? No. Oh, <laughs> oh dear. So, we move on to our next term, which is... Chisho Takawoko. So, established academics, what is that term which I'm not going to repeat again? You didn't do too bad a job of pronouncing it, actually. Um, my Japanese isn't brilliant, so bear with me, but um, Chisho Takawoko. Now, I would have loved to have met this woman. Buddhist nun, writer, model, particular postcards, actor and geisha. But she died at the age of 98 in 1994. And as even just those few descriptions suggest, she had a very colourful life. So Chisho, or to use her international moniker, the nine-fingered geisha, I'll tell you why she was nine-fingered a bit later on, was thought to have been born in Osaka. But after the death of her mother, she was raised by her grandmother, but her father sold her into slavery when she was just 12 and she became a courtesan. Her striking beauty meant she was much photographed and became a much sought-after geisha. In her 20s, she married and moved to the US, where she learned English in an English girls' school, had an affair with a woman. I don't think there's a causal connection between the two things. But things were not easy when she then returned to Japan. There's a rumour of a child born out of wedlock in Paris, a move to London, several suicide attempts, all before she remarried a doctor, ran a bar and starred in a film. Her religious life began in earnest when she was 39, and she entered the Buddhist priesthood in Temple Kume, which is in a, uh, just in a small part just north of uh, Kyoto, which became a place of refuge for women in distress. So why the reference to the Nine Fingers? Well, the story goes that at the age of 15, she chopped her little pinky off with a razor as a sign of her love and faithfulness for a local businessman and well-known playboy. He caught her admiring a picture of another man, and so he ended their romantic liaison out of jealousy. No wonder her life later inspired a well-known Japanese novel. George? Well, Chiso Takaoka, no, Takaoka, was a Buddhist monk, not a Buddhist nun. And he was travelling with his companion, Muki Fatshan, in an attempt to reach the famous Ehaiji Temple in Japan, where they intended to study under 
the celebrated Zen master Dogen. Now they were hampered by the snows, so Chizo decided to take refuge in a cave. His companion ridiculed him for his lack of perseverance and journeyed on, leaving Chizo behind. Well, that night, Chizo awoke from sleep and felt extremely thirsty, so he reached out for his drinking vessel, uh, which was a gourd, and drank from it. In the morning, he was surprised to find that he had drunk not out of a gourd, but out of a skull. And this brought him to the realization that the essence of things lay not in their physical manifestation, but in the mind, and that there is no essential difference between a gourd and a skull. The essence of all things is one. Well, realizing this, he gained instant enlightenment. Well, Chiso saw that had he reached the Eihaiji temple, he would only have received one set of doctrines from Dojen and not had the benefit of studying others. So he came to see that all teachings are manifestations of the same ultimate philosophical truths. So Chizu was a synthesizer and founded the Buddhist school of unity. As an expression of the unity of all things, Chizo taught that there was no essential difference between the sacred and the secular, so he made a point of visiting taverns and brothels as well as temples, associating <laughs> with the drunks and whores of Japan. According to one tradition, he died of a painful and unpleasant disease. <laughs> While other commentators say that he returned to the cave of his enlightenment where his body disappeared. And can I just give one piece of advice to the opposing team? If Chizu Takaoka were here, he would say that none of our answers are correct. They are all equally to be synthesized as the truth. I have a feeling if he would hear, he would be saying that you can get drunk regardless of the vessel that you use. <laughs> Paul. Well, again... My esteemed colleagues are spinning unbelievable yarns trying to deceive you with, you know, great um, religious quest stories and so on and so forth. Chisho Takaoka was a much more sober figure, uh, uh, um, indeed an anthropologist. Chisho Takaoka worked for the Japanese government in uh, the turn of the 20th century. And in 1905, he was posted in Taipei, Taiwan. At that time, was a colonial possession of, of Japan. And Takaoka is famous because he was the first Japanese anthropologist to do work among the headhunting Atayal peoples of the mountains of central Taiwan. Okay. So, for the benefit of the young academics, a brief one-sentence summary of your definitions. So Chisho was a Buddhist nun, writer, model, actor, and geisha. He was a 13th century Buddhist monk. Early 20th century anthropologist. So, Liam, which of our established academics is telling the truth? Very, very difficult to say, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, it's there are stranger stories around figures like that, but I do think there's just a tiny bit of a far-fetchedness to, to George's story, so I'll probably discount that, but might regret it. Um, okay. Um, 
The model, I was actually thinking the model for a while, but um, I don't know. My friend actually studies uh, uh, elements of Taiwan and during Japanese occupation, and obviously there's Taiwanese Aborigines. So I'm tempted to think maybe that actually Paul is offering the correct one. Paul, are you telling the truth? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well then. Doing well, guys. Doing well. See that your higher education is paying off. <laughs> so, and the next term is... Generalised symmetry. So, up-and-comers, what are your definitions for generalised symmetry? Vivian. Generalised symmetry is a consideration, or a generalisation, I guess, uh, that in any given event, ritual, or activity that we might study, all non-human actors should be given equal consideration to the human actors. So, for example, if we were to be studying the BASR, uh, and in particular, this particular recording, uh, we'd have to not only pay attention to all the humans in the room and how they were interacting, but also how all the non-humans are interacting with both humans and each other, such as this recording equipment, the chairs, or even the BASR committee members. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're done. <laughs> I'm short note. and two <laughs> Liam. Um, generalized symmetry is a recently emergent uh, new age trope coming out of uh, online, mainly on YouTube through uh, channels such as uh, Hyperionism and uh, Spirit Science, arguing that uh, the energy waves found in different objects or completely different things and different persons are actually fundamentally structured the same way. So that basically you can uh, perform healing rituals which will uh, tap into the shared sort of shared structure and actually uh, produce similar results. So far, they've not been able to like regrow limbs or anything like that. But you know, I think some people have been made to feel quite a bit better because of it. You know, and also because it's an online thing, they can just you can uh, access the sound clips, and then that will just you know produce some kind of feeling of calm or mildly irritate you while you're trying to study. Sort of <laughs> uh, as I thought I would test it out myself. But no. Amy. Right. Generalised symmetry clearly refers to a utopian state of balance and harmony that some New Age adherents are trying to both bring forth and obtain through a mixture of meditation techniques that are influenced by Indian and Buddhist practices and, and through an understanding of astrology, um, the coming of the, the new age of Aquarius in, in particular, and how that will usher in the real and proper new age, whereby a generalized symmetry of the world will be established. Excellent. So, for the established academics, a brief one-sentence summary of each definition, please. The consideration of non-human actors as being equivalent to human actors. An online sort of new age thing based around sound waves. <laughs> study it. Um, generalized symmetry is a utopian state of balance and harmony that is um, that will be ushered in, that the new agers hope will be ushered in at some point. Okay. So, Dawn. Who's telling the truth? I had a sneaking suspicion you'd be asking me this one. Um, I find all three 
fairly convincing. I don't know about about my teammates here. Um, there was something though about Vivian's kind of crisp technical delivery that I quite liked. So I'm going to go with that, Vivian. Yes. Are you telling the truth? I was. Yes. Yes. Planes are blinded. We've got a point. We've got a point. Yep. As the very established academic has very gleefully pointed out, they are in the lead with one point to zero as we come to the final definitions. So, the next term is Dodakai. So, established academics, what is the definition of Dodakai? Okay, Dawn. Well, it's a Korean term, and again, my Korean is not great. There's not many kind of terms that I can... I can pronounce most of the terms in my own discipline fairly well, but Japanese and Korean is a bit of a stretch. So this is a Korean term, and it is an architectural feature of Shinto, sh Shinto shrines in Korea that were built underneath the Japanese rule from the 1920s to, the 19, to 1945. So Dokaibi, or... Chozuya or Temizuya in Japanese is a water-filled basin or a small fountain for worshippers. Those seeking purification before entering the temple first wash their hands on the left, then they wash their hands on the right, and then they rinse out their mouth, and finally they handle the water, they wash the, the ladle, or the handle of the, of the ladle. So this is a, a very normal uh, purification ritual before worship, and all shrines have this facility, as well as, as, well as many Buddhist temples. In Japan, it's usually an open but covered area where, water, uh, where clear water fills one or various stone basins. It's a little bit like a stone trough. It's about waist height, and it's usually got a carved stone roof and located just outside the main gate. But in Korea during this time, when there was an expansion of the Shinto uh, tem temples built, the water basins were much uh, smaller, they were enclosed and located just inside the main hall. So this variation um, of the temple design was a feature of the Chosen Jingu, which was the largest and most important Korean shrine uh, just in, erected in 1925 on the peak of Namsam in Seoul. It was demolished, though, in October 1945, so you can't actually check out physically whether I'm correct or not by visiting it. <laughs> there are several theories explaining this derivation, but Shinto temples, Shinto temples are really known for being quite varied. And it's likely to be an intervention by the lead architect, Ishtu Chutu. George. Well, I've never met a Dokkaibi personally, but I gather they're around in Korea where they're part of Korean folk cosmology. A Dokkaibi is a demon or a goblin, and they look quite fierce and malevolent. They're not the same as ghosts, because they're not wraith-like forms of dead people, but they can possess living people, or even inanimate objects like brushes and shovels, and especially things that have blood on them. <laughs> if you do ever meet one, it might be a good idea to try to make friends with him or her. <laughs> And you can do this by offering food and drink, since some of them like to eat and drink very well. 
But do beware because some of them can become unduly inebriated, particularly the one-legged ones. <laughs> and once uh, they get inebriated, they can start to engage you in Korean wrestling. And they're, they're highly proficient at this. And in fact, they're unbeatable um, unless you kick their right leg away. That's assuming that it's the left leg that's missing, of course. <laughs> But whatever you do, don't get too intimate with them, since some of them are regarded as the causes of contagious diseases. They can also cause fires, so do make sure you've got your fire extinguisher with you too. So uh, that's... Uh, Paul. Okay, well, this Korean thing that they've both been going on about is a complete red herring. This has got nothing to do with Korea, North or South. Okay, the actual uh, the actual pronunciation is Toka Ebi, and that's because this word comes from, of course, the Star Trek universe, specifically Next Generation Klingon. Okay, and and you can find the word being used. Uh, in an episode where Worf is essentially enculturating his son uh, into Klingon ritual. And what Toka Ebi is, Kapla, okay, what, Toka Ebi, what, it, what it is, is um, it, 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 it's a sacrifice uh, one makes to the ancestral, uh, ancestral deity or ancestral lord in Klingon law. Okay, so... For the benefit of the up-and-comers, a one-sentence summary, please. It's a water-filled basin for worshippers to purify themselves with. It's a goblin or demon in Korean folk mythology. It's a, uh, a Klingon uh, ritual uh, sacrifice. Okay, Vivian, who is telling the <laughs> truth? Okay. Purely because I want it to be true. <laughs> I'm going to go with George. George, are you telling the truth? Yeah, actually, I was. <laughs> okay, so there is everything to play for with the final term. So, final word. Seriology. So... Up-and-coming academics, what is seriology? Vivian. Seriology is a very small and but growing subset of religious studies, which is focused on the study and the intersect intersections thereof between rituals, religious movements, and myths, all involving grains and wheat. Falling under this umbrella... <laughs> <laughs> Falling under this umbrella would be such things as harvest gods, their worship and myths in which they are involved, breaking of bread during prayers or other rituals, and most notably, strict food laws. Hmm. Liam. Again, nothing quite so exciting, but seriology is the interdisciplinary study of uh, agricultural practices in a culture. So that is whether from any, everything from slash and burn farming to cornflakes, basically. <laughs> Uh, you know, why particular communities establish a staple crop, what effect that has on the culture. Sounds a bit boring, but there it is. 
Amy. Right. Seriology is the study of uh, crop circle phenomenon. Uh, in its simplest form, a crop circle is a single circle within which the corn stems are flattened um, but not broken. Um, these can be quite intricate in design, um, but, but often they are the pranks of um, some mischievous farmers who like to get up to no good in the middle of the night after they've had too many in the pub. Um, but, you know, and these farmers have this thing about wanting other people to think that it is um, extraterrestrial phenomena. But anyway, for believers, the geometric patterns appear uh, mysteriously in the field. And, um, and um, yeah, they're kind of calling them temporary temples that they can get out and do their thing in on a Saturday night. Or on a, on a, on a full moon, rather. <laughs> <laughs> I shall not ask for further details. <laughs> so, if you could provide a one-sentence summary for the established academics. Um, the study of religious implications involving grains and wheat. Basically just the interdisciplinary study of farming practices, really. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> um, the study of crop circle phenomena. Paul. Who is giving you the truth? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't believe the word or the or the definitions. I mean, I'm really stumped by by what's being offered. Um, I mean, basically, I just think it's all a lie. <laughs> None of it's true and never has been. But given that I do have to make a choice because them's the rules of the game. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go, Amy. Amy. Are you telling the truth? Yes. Ah, two points! Yes! <laughs> so this is the bit where I did the big announcement of who won, but then Dawn kind of got a little bit excited. <laughs> I want a gold star for winning too. <laughs> so, after an intense game in which we've established that modern day PhDs clearly aren't up to scratch compared to the older PhDs. <laughs> I'm still an early career researcher. Can I just say this out loud? <laughs> anyway, as I was saying before I was interrupted, the established academics have won again. Yay! So I would just like to say thank you to all of my contestants, Amy, Liam, Vivian, Dawn, George, and Paul. I'd also like to thank the BASR, who, whether they are human or not, have been gracious enough to sponsor this event, and we hope that they will continue to do so in the future. And lastly, I would like to say thank you to my audience. I hope you have been at least mildly entertained for the past hour or so. And so it is one final tradition that, in unison, we all say thanks for listening. So, on three. One, two... Three. Thanks for listening. So, the reason we didn't give out the right answers is because each of the contestants came up with the definition. So theoretically, if we told you who had given the correct answer, you could work out on the final round, who was left to tell the truth?
So I had to leave it open so that there was still an opportunity to get it wrong. I only realized that literally five seconds before we started the game. <laughs>